I felt like Sojourner Truth was pushing down on one shoulder, and Harriet Tubman was pushing down on the other, saying, Sit down, girl. I was glued to my seat. These words were offered to Newsweek magazine in an article by a profoundly courageous African-American lady in Montgomery, Alabama, who refused to give up her bus seat to a white person in 1955. She was arrested, but the aftermath of her act of self-dignity ultimately resulted in the court case that ended bus segregation in Montgomery and then further across the entire state of Alabama. She will forever be remembered as a heroine in the civil rights movement. If I asked you to raise your hand, most of you would say, good for you, Rosa Parks, and good for Rosa Parks. But this was not Rosa Parks. Nine months before she took her stand against those racially prejudiced laws of her day, a 15-year-old Claudette Colvin had done the exact same thing. She just completed a unit of study on great African-American leaders in America. And so when she was ordered to give up her seat to another person, this a white person, Claudette Colvin asserted her constitutional right to retain the seat. She paid for it. Two police officers forcibly removed her from the bus amid a torrent of verbal abuse and insults, and she did not retaliate. She did not pray imprecatory psalms for God to kick out the teeth of her enemies. However, she did quote the 23rd Psalm, and she quoted the Lord's Prayer. This 15-year-old girl's act of courage helped, at least in part, to embolden Mrs. Rosa Parks' actions months later. And for a variety of reasons, the NAACP chose the Parks case to be the face of the challenge to the segregation practice, but a relatively unknown 15-year-old girl lit the fire of justice first. She was the -the behind-the-scenes influence that helped write a moral plot in America's story. You ever notice in Scripture, and even in history, It's often the unknown, the unheralded, the overlooked who play significant roles, especially in Scripture, especially in the kingdom of God. Our king looks beyond what humanity sees. He sees the potential for our lives to make an impact. And while we often present excuses for why our background or our family or our challenges make it impossible for us to do anything great for God, God looks beyond all of those obstacles and excuses, and He calls us to do what only His grace can accomplish in and through us. That is the story of David, overlooked by everybody around him. But when the second king of Israel was to be anointed from Jesse's house, nobody in his family thought David would be the one to be anointed. Nobody thought he could be king. Even the man of God had a hard time believing it. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Are you sure? And yet God gave Samuel specific instructions. That ruddy young man, he's the one. Anoint him. God chose David. And God chooses you. We're going to hear more about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. I'm so glad you're here on this brand new season. It still has that new season right out of the showroom smell to it. You are listening to LJ Harry. I'm your host, and you're listening to the God's Word for Life 
companion podcast, and we are in the fall of 2023. This episode is entitled The Unexpected and Overlooked, and it launches a brand new series on the lives of Kings David and Solomon. I'm so glad you're with me. This episode stems from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, referring to Eliab, David's oldest brother. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. From the beginning of Israel, God's choice for Israel was not for them to have a mortal king. I'm going to call on your history or geography knowledge here. His plan for them was a theocracy. God certainly would have leaders here, such as judges and others like Moses and Joshua, but he would be the king. The only sovereign to whom they would bow would be God himself. Israel's king intended to direct Israel through the voices of prophets and priests, but not through the dictates of a crowned king. But Israel was distracted. They looked around to the nations around them and said, well, they have a king. How come we can't have a king? (laughs) It sounded like elementary school. And they began to demand that they could have a king just like all the other nations around them had a king. And even though God had warned them to the contrary, Israel still measured their success by natural metrics rather than by their obedience to God, who alone had delivered them out of Egypt and opened and closed the Red Sea for them and on their enemies. But as a parent is wont to do, after a child says, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, eventually God said, fine, you can have what you want. Be very careful what we pray for because sometimes God will give us what we want, even if it's not what we need which is why it's imperative we carefully consider the things our hearts yearn for, the things that we want. We need to make sure what we want is what God wants. Finally, God did give Israel a king, and that king did exactly what God prophesied and promised he would do. In the beginning, King Saul was a good man with a humble spirit. You trace the journey of his selection by God, and you find a young man who accepted counsel from God's man, a young man who worshipped God, who prophesied, who hid himself from public acclaim, That was a great beginning. Sadly, it was not the ending. Saul's failures were all over the place. They were front-page news. But ultimately, his direct rejection of godly instructions brought about his downfall. The Amalekites were the avowed enemies of Israel, and they had filled the cup of God's wrath to overflowing. And God sent word to Saul by the prophet Samuel, Saul, you are to utterly destroy Amalek, everyone, everything, spare nothing, even the women and children. The fierceness of God's judgment seems shocking to us, but it speaks of his profound hatred of sin. That alone should have convinced Saul that God is serious about this. The Amalekites are a wicked, sinful people, and God is going to avenge what they did to Israel through Saul. But instead, Saul chose to evaluate the Amalekites from his limited human perspective rather than through the lens of God's righteousness and holiness. And Saul saved the parts of Amalek that he didn't consider too bad. It was overt rebellion against God's command, his clear command. God said, utterly destroy everything and everyone. And Saul said, how about I keep a few things and a few folks? And Samuel delivered the fatal message directly to Saul. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, bringing us to our first question. 
Why do you think Saul went from humility to overt rebellion in the first 20 years of his reign? It's a good question. It might be easy for the ill-informed to assume pastors take very lightly this responsibility to rebuke wrongdoing or find some perverse validation when the dire consequences about which they have warned come to pass. We told you this would happen, and it did happen, but you know what? Don't worry about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. When one has a heart of a shepherd, a true heart of a shepherd, only a shepherd's love for sheep and their concern for their welfare will compel that difficult task of confronting sin And that same love breaks the shepherd's heart when sheep ignore counsel and continue past the fence toward the cliff or toward the wolves. Samuel was no different. Samuel was a shepherd. Many of Saul's actions grieved him and probably angered him. Samuel probably went home to Mrs. Samuel and said, Oh, that guy's done it again. But Samuel loved Saul. Samuel loved his role in Israel, that he was supposed to be God's man for God's people. Samuel was faithful to give Saul the appropriate rebuke and sentence, and yet Samuel's heart trembled because he knew the consequences. He never went to see Saul again. The Bible's testimony of how Samuel felt is clear, though. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, for Samuel 15, verse 35. Here's the second question. Have you ever felt rebuked by a spiritual leader, and how did you respond? And how could you have responded better if you did not respond well? That's, that's a really good question. Samuel's obedience to God's voice caused him profound grief. He mourned for Saul. His emotions were like one who had been touched by the death of a loved one. Doing the will of God did not exempt Samuel from this bitter taste of regret in his mouth. I wish Saul would have done better. Life can be tough. Sometimes the challenges we face are the result of hell's direct attack on us. Sometimes they're the result of our poor choices, and sometimes they're just the result of living in a world after the fall. But it's a simple and undeniable fact that hardships and pain will come. We will hurt. We only need to witness enough sunrises to endure days of difficulty and challenges. And it's true for those who do serve God and those who don't. Redemption, being saved, doesn't mean that every day is going to be kittens and pink lemonade. Instead, we will know, just as Samuel found out, that doing the will of God can mingle tears with our days. The end of Saul's reign had already been pronounced, and the task of discerning God's will for his successor became paramount for Samuel. We've got to find the next king. God has to guide this decision. Israel had already tried it through human perspective. Saul's the tallest, Saul's the biggest, Saul's the bravest, Saul's the king. He appeared to have every natural advantage, but his leadership ended in such ruin. We look to it today as an example of the pitfalls confronting a leader. Saul becomes a cautionary tale on what leaders should not do. So who would God select to step into this newly formed leadership vacuum? Who would sit on the throne? How should Samuel proceed to anoint the man who would succeed King Saul? We can't ignore the fact that not everybody knew about God's rejection of Saul. It's very likely that very few heard these fateful words from Samuel to Saul as he spoke to him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Simply stated, Today the kingdom is gone from you and God is going to give it to a man better than you. And those who did hear it probably couldn't imagine it. Really? He's our very first king, hand-selected by God, now summarily rejected by him? How? How'd this happen? 
For Samuel to proceed with anointing a new king could prove to be dangerous to him because backslidden Saul was, let's just say, not exactly happy that somebody was going to take his crown. It's not unreasonable to think the king would have Samuel arrested for treason and even executed if he would dare name a new ruler while Saul was still on the throne. And yet God gave Samuel clear instructions, and the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Verse Samuel 16, verse 1. Doing the will of God in the face of opposition can be intimidating. But when we have clear instructions, when we have peace from God that he is guiding our steps, we have to obey lest we risk the same rejection Saul received. Our reverence for God's opinion of us should always overshadow our fear of what others might say or do to us. Bringing us to our next question. Think of a time when you did what was right knowing there would be consequences. What lessons did you learn from that experience? Can you imagine the crowd as they heard Samuel has arrived at Jesse's house and Samuel told Jesse, this is why he's here. One of your boys is going to be the next king. And they looked around at each other. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be the firstborn? Is it going to be Eliab? Sibling rivalries took on a whole new look as they found out one among them would soon be rich and powerful and rule over all of Israel. And when Samuel saw the oldest son, Eliab, he immediately assumed, there he is. He's tall, he's strong, he's brave, he's just like Saul, hopefully he's better than Saul, he's going to be the next king. Samuel could already envision him standing tall while draped in royal robes of his office. A striking king he's going to make, but God quickly popped that thought bubble when the Lord said, not him, I have refused him. Samuel had to be confused. Refused him? Well, that that doesn't make any sense. He looks like a king to me. However, insight into the mind of God can be found in the next few words from God to Samuel in the same verse. The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. God's criteria for kingdom service and particularly kingdom leadership is not visible to the naked eye. The casual human observer probably won't pick it up. It's found in the characteristics that speak of character, integrity, passion for the things of God. Peter called it the hidden man of the heart in 1 Peter 3, verse 4. But it's not hidden in the least from God. Hebrews 4 tells us all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Those attributes that are only discernible in the hearts of humans are what qualify somebody or disqualify somebody from being used by God. Nothing more, nothing less. Next question, what do you believe God looks for in the heart that qualifies a person to do something for God? And that is going to be our question of the week. If you go to our social media, you'll find on our God's Word for Life Facebook page, and there's a link there in the show notes, a question of the week, and this is it, and we want to hear from you. What do you believe God looks for in the heart that qualifies a person to do something for God? It's imperative that every life choice we make uses the same set of values God uses giving favoritism because of our connections or talents or appearances in lieu of the condition of a holy heart does not please God. If he values the intangible aspects, the hidden man of the heart, so must we. If he places worth on motive and attitude, so must we. There are plenty of Eliabs in this world who look the part but are not the part and they're refused by God and 
beautifully, there are plenty of Davids in this world who don't look the part, but please God, and God will use them. David was Jesse's youngest son. He seems almost an afterthought in this entire saga. All the sons summarily were rejected by God, one by one by one by one by one, and nobody even mentions David until Samuel looks around and asks Jesse, well, you got another kid hanging around here? And even then, the tone is almost dismissive. He says, well, yeah, we, you know, the youngest, but I mean, he's, he's keeping sheep right now. We make sheep keeping a noble pursuit not so but during their time and their time of the Bible. Shepherds were considered unclean, filthy, disreputable. They stepped where sheep stepped, and they slept where sheep slept. For some reason, he wasn't even favored enough to be invited to the party. Maybe they deemed him too young. Maybe they deemed him too unqualified. Maybe they deemed him too small. Whatever the reason, nobody picked David <laughs> except the only one whose vote matters. Here's another question. Have you ever been in a position where somebody discounted you because of your past? How should a child of God respond? When David walked in the door, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 through 13. When I was in Bible college, this was the most preached from verse. When a preacher would open up the Bible to preach and say, I'm going to preach today from 1 Samuel, I can almost guarantee it. It's going to be chapter 16. Because there was a whole college full of Davids, people that the world would look at and say, I don't know, not really sure about them. They don't have the, the ability, the talent, the gifting, the connections, the right last name, the network, and yet they had a heart to please God. And to this day, God is using so many of them. Thank God, even though others discount and forget David's, God anoints them. We serve in the kingdom of God. We serve for the pleasure of God, not for ours. Our ideas, our will, our comfort, our pleasure, that is not really that significant. We might have our own conceptions of how God's work would unfold or should, but those really don't matter. Only God decides, and He does what He pleases. He's sovereign. We must recognize and accept the truth of Psalm 75, verse 7, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. And we wrap this up. We don't know this guy's name. We don't know what became of him. We don't even know if he's still alive. Most People just refer to him as Tank Man. All we know is he was an individual of profound courage who did not even know that his actions were being observed on that infamous morning. In the spring of 1989, a hunger grew among many in China for political and economic reform. The fiscal growth of the nation over the previous decade had exposed many in that oppressed country to some foreign ideas and lifestyles. For just over six weeks, student-led protests had erupted in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China. They were demanding significant changes in the social construct that was controlled by communism. Some thought it would be best if they negotiated with the protesters and tried to make some concessions, but the hardliners, they held sway. They said, no way, we don't negotiate. The protests would be stopped. If they had to be stopped by violence and force, so be it. That crackdown was to begin on June 3rd as columns of tanks advanced among the protesters and crushed many people. After two days of brutal conflicts and sheer terror, the world witnessed Tank Man do the unthinkable. 
He placed himself in the path of an advancing column of tanks and even continued to maneuver in front of them when they tried going around him. He brought that military might to a stop while holding two grocery bags in his hands, suggesting he didn't plan to be there. He just found himself in a historic moment. He went to do grocery shopping, got his lettuce and cottage cheese, and on the way back, found himself in the front of tanks. And he didn't look physically imposing. If you look online for Tank Man, he doesn't look like a He-Man. We will likely never know if he was an intellectual master or financial genius. White-collar executive, blue-collar laborer, we don't know. History hides these details from us. But the authorities soon removed him from that place where he took a stand, but the worldwide attention he received brought criticism and economic sanctions against China for their brutality from numerous countries. It's truly amazing what an ordinary person can do when guided by morality and principle. God can take a common person and change the course of a family, a church, a city, a nation. We'd be here until next New Year's just trying to recount how many ordinary men and women have answered the call of God to go to a city or a country. And God brought profound revival to thousands of broken lives. One who was otherwise on the far side of some hill tending sheep and fighting off lions and bears in unseen battles suddenly felt the oil of the anointing of God running off his head. God has big plans for you just as he had for David. He has not designed you to just do ordinary. He has created you. He has saved you, each of us, for something more. And others may not see it. And at times you might even doubt it. And yet you have a bright destiny. So go ahead, David. Keep your heart right. Because one day, when God is ready and you are ready, God will exalt you in due time. I want us to pray for God to help us to keep our hearts right, because that's what he sees first. And then God to give us vision and courage to answer his call and fulfill the destiny he has placed for him in us. Dear Lord Jesus, we love you. I thank you that you don't need the mighty and the noble and the wise, but you're willing to take the willing and use them, use us to do something for you. Help us, God, keep our hearts right. Help us to live lives of integrity and morality and principle. I pray, Lord, help us to be righteous as you are righteous, to live holy as you are holy. And help us, God, when that call comes, when you reach out and you share with us your plan for our lives, help us to fulfill that plan. Help us to follow after you, to do what you've called us to do, to lay aside our fears and our excuses and do the will of God. I pray for everyone listening today, whether they consider themselves unworthy, unqualified, help them, Lord, help all of us, Lord, to be humble, to stay humble and available and willing to do what you have called us to do. I pray this today in the name of Jesus, anoint David's. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Be sure to subscribe, follow, like, share, click the notify button so you'll never miss an episode, and we will continue to grow in this wonderful series. I'm excited about this series. Be sure to share it with somebody that they can hear about this podcast in this episode as well. If you're looking for some great resources, we have just launched the fall curriculum, and it is available on PentecostalPublishing.com. And if you use promo code GWFL10, GWFL10, you can receive 10% off your entire order the first time you use the promo code GWFL10. Go to PentecostalPublishing.com, and you'll find books, music, curriculum, everything is there, Bibles, Bible studies, wonderful resources, or as my friends in Canada would say, resources there on PentecostalPublishing.com. 
I want to say a hearty thank you to all those who have been listening to the God's Word for Life podcast. It has grown by leaps and bounds. In fact, we've just crested our 170th download in God's Word for Life. So thank you so much. Continue to listen, continue to grow, continue to walk, continue to share, and we'll continue to grow together. Next week, we continue this exciting fall series, and our next episode is called David and Goliath. I'll give you a quick spoiler alert by the end of the day. The scoreboard read God 1, Giants 0, and I'm really looking forward to telling you that story. Looking forward to next week, and always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.